That's 1 Corinthians 7 again, um, starting at verse 25, through to the end of the chapter. And we've been working through 1 Corinthians over the last number of weeks, and we reach the end of this section and a bit of a break for the next several weeks over Easter before uh, coming to the second half of the book after that. Um, So last week, we had the Apostles teaching on the goodness of marriage and the goodness of remaining where the Lord has placed you. And we continue now as he addresses a further question about marriage. Let's read 1 Corinthians 7, beginning verse 25. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right. But he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So read God's words. Let's bow our heads and pray, and I will preach on this passage. Almighty Lord, we thank you that you are a living and speaking God. And we thank you that your voice is mighty and it is life-giving. It is the voice that called light from darkness in the beginning, that called something from nothing. It is the voice that calls life from death. And we pray, Lord, that this evening these words would be life to us. You, from our dead hearts and minds and ears would bring life and life abundant that is glorifying to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, uh, as I said, we've been working through 1 Corinthians over the last uh, number of weeks. And um, the last section, chapter 5 up to where we are, um, the Apostle Paul has been dealing with a number of issues that have caused a lot of strife and disagreement in the congregation at Corinth. They're particularly uh, issues to do with relationships, romantic and sexual relationships in particular within that. So in chapter 5, he addresses this horrible situation where a man in the congregation is sleeping with his stepmother. Uh, In chapter 6, the first part, he addresses believers who are taking each other to court and the strife they're causing each other. And after that, he addresses people who are being too permissive about sexual immorality. And then we get to chapter 7, and in uh, verse 1, you'll see that he refers to the matters that they wrote about. So the Corinthians have written to him about some things that they want him to address, and Paul is now getting to those. There's a bit of a gear change. In chapters 5 and 6 with this sexual immorality, he was correcting people who were too permissive, people who thought that you can do as you like and live as you like and still call yourself a Christian. They were too permissive about sex, but there's a real gear change in chapter 7, when he's talking to people who are being too restrictive about sex. People who are saying that actually sex and marriage are sinful and to be avoided. It might seem odd that you'd have both of those same things in a congregation, but one extreme often begets the other as a reaction. And in any congregation of any size, you're going to find people at the poles of um, any spectrum. Um, So it shouldn't surprise us that Paul is having to address these two very different problems. Um... And then as we get to this section of chapter 7, he addresses a final question on the topic, something the Corinthians have clearly asked him about. And the question really, um, as we should interpret it, is should engaged Christians call off their engagements? That's the question he's responding to when he says now about virgins. Um, Virgins being young, unmarried women. Um, Paul kind of assumes that the two things go hand in hand of never having had sex before and not being married, they mean the same thing. Um, So he refers to virgins and to the young men who they are engaged to. And the question that's been presented to him is, should engaged Christians call off their engagements? Which, to be honest, seems like a bit of an odd question. Um, I don't imagine that many of us have ever really asked that question before. Um, like I said, some of the Corinthians have been teaching that marriage and sex are not spiritual enough, that they're too physical and they're distracting and sinful. And Paul corrected that in the first half of chapter 7. Um, but it makes sense if some people think that, if they think that marriage and sex are sinful and they're a distraction, that they would think, well, then should you not get engaged in the first place? Then you'll avoid it and not have to, not have to ask that question. And um, Paul, he sort of agrees with them. He endorses being single but for very different reasons to the Corinthians. He actually exposes they have some very wrong reasons for wanting to be single, and he presents us with the right reasons in this passage. But more than that, he actually says that being unmarried is better than being married. Now, I think very few of us empathize either with the Corinthians and the question that they ask, or with Paul and the answer he gives. It's a bit like watching Prime Minister's questions at the minute. The leader of the, leader of the opposition stands up to ask a question. You think, he's a bit of an idiot, and that's a bit of a stupid question. And the leader of the government stands up and gives an answer. You think, she's a bit of an idiot, and that was a stupid answer. Watching that back and forth, you don't empathise with anybody. That can be a bit like reading 1 Corinthians 7. You don't empathise with that question, should Christians uh, call off their engagements. 
Why are they asking that? And Paul responding, well, actually, being single is better than being married. Most of us, if we're honest, instinctively don't empathize with that either. Um, Culturally and in the church, the reason for that is that we celebrate marriage. And we view marriage as the norm, and it is the norm. We view it as the place we expect to end up, the place we expect our children to end up. And in a world where marriage is under lots of attack, we go out of our way to celebrate it a lot of the time. Even where marriage itself is kind of neglected in our culture, really what people want still is a long-term monogamous relationship, not lifelong singleness. So with these big differences between us and Corinth, what does the Lord intend to do with us with a passage like this? Well, like Corinth, our view of singleness is often very wrong. Our view of uh, marriage is often very wrong. And Paul's words actually correct our error just as much as they did that of the Corinthians. In this passage, it applies not just to people here who are unmarried. It applies to all of us. Partly because those of us who are married, half of us will die single. Because your spouse will die before you or you'll die before them. So you'll be single again if you're married right now. So it would serve you well to prepare for your eventual singleness before you get there. But even if you're the one who dies first... Um, before then, if you're part of this church, you are deeply connected to your single brothers and sisters here. And so you should learn to view and treat them as the Lord would view and treat them. So, let us get into the Apostles' instructions. And really, the passage centers around a concrete instruction uh, he gives in verses 27 and 28. So I'm going to structure it around that instruction. Verse 25, Paul shows us why he's got the authority to say what he does. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Now, what does Paul mean when he says he has no command, but he's giving a judgment? It's something he doesn't really seem to say anywhere else in the New Testament. It can seem like he's just saying, the Lord is fairly indifferent about this, but this is what I recommend. Um, he, as if he's saying what he's saying here is kind of less inspired by God than the other things that he says, less authoritative. But that's not the case. And the things he's addressed so far in the book, the Lord has said something clear about. Paul's quoted the Old Testament seven times in six chapters, but he's just acknowledging the fact that there's no specific answer to the Corinthians' question. No one's really asked it before. There's been no need to ask it before, because in the Old Testament, Christ wasn't coming back anytime soon. So, Um, he's acknowledging the Lord doesn't give a specific answer to this. But just because the Lord hasn't spoken directly about it doesn't mean that he hasn't spoken clearly enough about it for Paul as an apostle to give a judgment and an answer on it. This isn't Paul's personal judgment because he's not just a general church leader giving his thoughts. It's his apostolic judgment. He was appointed an apostle by the risen Christ with authority to teach, authority to lay foundations for the life of the church. So this isn't Paul recommending what he prefers to do. It's him saying, the Lord hasn't specifically answered this question, but if we look at what the scriptures say, this is the clear answer to it. This is the clear way that we should view marriage and singleness now. So Paul isn't just um, giving his preference. He's asserting he has authority to say what he's about to say. So that's the authority for his instruction in verse 25. And then verse 26 
is the, the principle for the instruction that he's going to give. It's a one-sentence summary of his rationale. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. When he says it's good for a man to remain as he is, he means remaining unmarried. Um, a betrothed or engaged person who he's addressing, they are unmarried. Really, there are two proper statuses. You're either married or not married. Even if you're engaged, you're still not married. So Paul says it's better for you to remain unmarried. He says that because of what he calls the present crisis. What is the present crisis? The word that he uses in the, in the Greek is elsewhere translated as distress. So when Jesus predicts the destruction of Jerusalem, he says um, there will be great distress in the land. It's that same word. Um, but it's also a word translated as necessity or compulsion. So if you look at verse 37, the same word is actually used. But the man who has settled the manner in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, that's the same word. So picking up those two meanings, the present crisis is some kind of distress that lays a compulsion on the people Paul's writing to. And if we peek ahead in the chapter, we can see exactly what it is he's talking about. In verse 29, he says, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. And throughout the New Testament, the thing that we are again and again told the time is short for is the return of Jesus. The present crisis is the impending return of Jesus Christ to come and judge the world, to establish a new creation. And it's the urgent compulsion that Christians have to tell people about that and to prepare the church for the day that that happens. That's the crisis. That Christ is coming back soon and that the church has work to do before then. Now, if you're not a Christian here this evening, that sounds like maybe the sort of wacky thing that people with um, placards and sandwich boards uh, kind of stand outside the Houses of Parliament uh, talking about. The end is nigh. And there are definitely some bad ways of talking about Jesus returning to judge the world, but it is what Christians believe, and it is what the Bible teaches, that there is a day of judgment coming. No one knows when, when Jesus is going to judge everyone who's ever lived, and they will be sent either to an eternal paradise of joy with God in a new creation with no sin and death, or they'll be sent away to an everlasting judgment in what the Bible calls hell. And the difference between the two is not if you've been good and lived a moral life, but it is if you have asked for forgiveness. That day is coming. Christians have believed that for thousands of years. Paul says of it um, that you know very well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. That's the present crisis and Paul says we should live a certain way in light of it. But I, as I've thought about this, um, though I believe that and believe with Christians throughout history that Christ has died and ascended and is coming again to judge the living and the dead, that doesn't really make me view um, my every day as a day of crisis. Crisis is an imminent word, a word that causes panic and piles the pressure on, isn't it? And the 29th of March, that's a day that makes me feel like there is a present crisis, but not the coming return of Christ. 
When India and Pakistan, two countries with nuclear weapons, were shooting each other's planes out of the air the other week, that felt like a present crisis, but not so much with the return of Christ. Why does the head knowledge that I have, and have had my whole Christian life, that a day's coming when Jesus is going to come and judge the world, why does that not make me see every day as in some way a code red? Well, there are lots of reasons for that. Um, that's not what I'm going to address, but I'm sure that some of you as Christians have experienced that as well. Why is there this disconnect between what I know about the coming return of Christ and how I actually view life day to day? Well, that should tell us a bit why we find it so hard to empathize with Paul's answers to the Corinthians. I don't have that urgency. I don't have that view of the day of the Lord that it makes this day a day of crisis, which is why I find Paul's instructions in this chapter difficult and weird. My attitude to the day of the Lord is often selfish. I think of it about as my hope and my comfort, which it is, but it is also my rebuke and my challenge. It could happen today. It will be too late when it does come for those who don't know about Jesus. It presents a huge task for the church to tell people about it before it comes. Yet I don't feel like it's a crisis very often. But Paul tells us that it is such a crisis that it should affect the way that we view even marriage. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. That's the principle for what Paul's going to say. So the instruction itself, when we get to verse 27 and 28, uh, are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Um, So if you're engaged, you can breathe a sigh of relief at this point. Um, The aim of the passage is not that Paul wants people to call off the commitments that they've made. Um, Are you pledged to a, a woman? Don't seek to be released from it. But his aim is that those who are not yet committed into marriage would be spared the troubles that it brings. That's why he tells those of us who are free from the commitment of marriage not to seek it. Do not seek a wife. That's one of the commands in this passage, and it's it's a hard one. That's not to say that Christians shouldn't uh, welcome marriage if it comes along, or even keep an eye out for it. But Paul says... A Christian is not to actively seek out a spouse. doesn't mean you don't talk to that Christian guy or Christian girl you like if you are a young unmarried person. doesn't mean you don't try and go out on a date with them or um, anything like that. But you are not to actively seek a spouse. I can't speculate too much on what that might look like for you. Were you to do that? And in Paul's day, it would mean probably refraining from arranging a marriage in the way it would have been done then. But remains very relevant for us today in an age where there are specific Christian dating apps, where it's very easy to pop along to another evangelical church down the road to see if anyone new has joined the congregation since the last time you were there. Easy to uh, sign up to go away on, with Christian holiday companies to see who you meet, because you didn't meet anyone on the last one. And obviously you've exhausted all the options in your own congregation. All the other single people here are, are weird, or you dated them when you were a teenager. You're entitled to outsource after that, right? Paul wouldn't be very impressed by that 
attitudes to marriage and to singleness. His great concern isn't that the unmarried Christians he's writing to go and find a godly spouse, that that is a good thing. His concern is actually that they are spared the troubles of marriage. Now that seems an odd thing for Paul to say. Marriage has kind of fallen out of favour in our culture because it's too much like hard work. Things weren't wonderful, Uh, we weren't this wonderful Christian nation 50, 60 years ago, but we have lost a sense that marriage is a commitment that you put up with, whether it's hard or not. Is Paul saying that? Is he saying marriage is too much like hard work, so um, don't hassle yourself with it? Not quite. Let's see what he means. Uh, The motivation for his instruction comes in 29 to 31. Paul clearly knows he might be misunderstood, so he says, what I mean, brothers and sisters is that the time is short. That's why Paul wants to spare unmarried Christians the trouble of marriage. Not because it's too much like hard work, but because the time is short. There's not long left until Christ returns. There's a church to build and to feed and protect in that time, and there's a lost world to reach with the gospel. And Paul says then, we shouldn't be absorbed by things that exist now that aren't going to exist after Jesus has come back. He's not saying that those things don't matter. He's not saying marriage doesn't matter or in those verses that um, joy and mourning don't matter. This is the same apostle who says, husbands, love your wives. And he says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. So there's a tension between these two instructions that Paul gives across his letters. It's good to get married. It's good to rejoice. It's healthy to mourn. Yet, verse 31 really enlightens us as to what he's saying here. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Those good things, and marriage even, is not something that should engross and take over and call all of the shots in a person's life. Now marriage, though it's a glorious thing, though it's a picture of the love that Christ has for his church and a picture of the coming final day, it's not going to endure after the final day because marriage will not be there in the new creation. So it shouldn't set the agenda for the Christian's life now, in the present time, because it won't set the agenda for the Christian's life in eternity. Marriage and all the sorrows and joys that come with it is a thing of this world. That's what um, Paul means when um, he says it is of the world. Not worldly in a sense of it's evil and corrupt and sinful, but it's temporary it's earthly and the time of earthly things is very short again my perception of the state of things falls really far short of what paul seems to have here the time doesn't feel short until jesus comes back in 2000 years since he ascended and said you'll see me return as you saw me go we have yet to see him return as they saw him go i don't feel in my gut that the time is short i feel like i have all the time in the world I don't feel that it would be functionally better for me to be single than it is for me to be married. I would much rather be married than be single by nature. And that's because I don't live as if I didn't have a wife, like Paul says. Those who have wives should live as if they do not. I don't know if I do that. I don't think I mourn as if I didn't mourn. I don't rejoice as if I didn't rejoice. What are the things that set the agenda for my life? My marriage avoiding the things that will cause me mourning, pursuing the things that will give me joy, um, obtaining and being governed by the things that I buy and own. 
Those things govern me, rather than the fact that the time is short before Jesus comes back. Now, those of us who are married, what would it look like to be married and yet live as if you were not, while still honouring all the other things Paul says about loving your wife and loving your husbands? What would it look like to live as if you were not married whilst you are? As I've thought about this, the question I've meditated on is, who comes into my house other than me, my spouse, and my daughter? It's very easy as a married couple or a family to find that slowly the cast of characters in your home decreases and to a very small recurring cast consisting of those who live there. You become engrossed in the home and in the marriage. And you can justify that as, oh, we're protecting our family time, we need some time to ourselves. I'll say more soon about a right way of defending your family time and your marital commitments But that shouldn't mean that we get to a stage where we realize it's been weeks or months since someone other than an immediate member of our family has been across our doorway. You can't afford those weeks and months because the time is short. That is why Paul makes his instruction not to go out and seek a wife because the time is short. Now again, I still don't think we're really tracking with Paul. I'm definitely not at this point in the passage. I don't really agree with him. So he gives lots of justification for what he said in the next several verses. So verse 32 to 40, to the end of the passage, really are his justification for everything he has said. This is the justification for his instruction. He's mentioned the many troubles of marriage, and now he elaborates on them. Um, Verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. So we would naturally think that being divided that way is a sinful thing. When we talk about like a divided devotion to the Lord, that's usually in a kind of convicting, um, rebuking way. We should be wholeheartedly devoted, shouldn't we? Or like when James, in the epistle of James, rebukes us for being double-minded. It sounds like the same sort of thing. Paul seems to set them up in opposition. You know, uh, the affairs of this world in competition with the affairs of the Lord. And surely if something is in conflict with the affairs of the Lord, that thing must be sinful and to be avoided. Yet we know from elsewhere, again, that Paul teaches us to love our spouses. And doing that is, in one sense, the Lord's affair. Husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church. What part of that isn't the Lord's affair? If you're a Christian, every part of your life is the Lord's affair in some way. But there are things which are particularly and especially the Lord's affairs, which is what Paul has in view. The Bible often uses um, the same terms in a narrow sense and a broad sense. So think about the Lord's ownership of things. Psalm uh, Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Yet we're also told that we are God's special possession as Christians. So the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, yet he has a special possession. Or God calls Israel a nation of priests. Yet within that, the tribe of Levi are the priests. The same thing in a broad way and a narrow way. Or how all of our life is worship. Romans 12, you're a living sacrifice, that's your act of worship. Yet this, on a Sunday in church, is especially and particularly worship. Paul's using 
narrow sense of the Lord's affairs here. In a broad sense, everything in your life is the Lord's affair. In a narrow sense, the specific work of the church is the Lord's affairs. Building up Christians to maturity before Jesus comes and telling people who aren't Christians about him before he comes. Those are the Lord's affairs that, the Paul, has, that Paul has in mind. And with regard to those things, it is better to be unmarried than to be married. Not in a moral way, but in a functional way. And later on, Paul says, if you marry, you do right. If you don't marry, you do right. Morally the same. But if you don't marry, you do better. Functionally. When we grasp that, things start to make a lot more sense. An unmarried man can be wholly devoted in a narrow sense to discipling people who are following Jesus and to telling people who um, aren't Christians about him. The married man, rightly, and as a matter of being godly, has to divide his interests between his wife and his home and the Lord's affairs. If you're a husband or a wife, you know that's your first ministry, isn't it? Loving and serving your spouse. Loving and serving those in your home. And it will mean at times that you can't devote yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord's affairs. What does it look like? It can be dad comes home from work, half six on a Tuesday evening. He's determined to make the prayer meeting at 7.45. He comes through the door and it's clear it has been an absolute shocker of a day at home. Uh, the baby's been inconsolable. Nothing's been done. Mum's in bits. She hasn't eaten all day. And as soon as dad's home, she, she bursts into tears. She just needs an hour or two to get her head together. And she actively asks him not to go to the prayer meeting. Um, it becomes very clear to dad, as he's got in, that he's probably not going to make 7.45. And if he did try and do that, what would he leave at home? A mess that he's responsible for. Now, far be it for me to make excuses for not going to the prayer meeting. Most of our excuses for missing such things are laziness, and we exaggerate our household problems to cover over a multitude of sins. But married couples, we have all had those kind of experiences, haven't we? It's not just the case with specific church events. Generally, making time and filling up your life with non-Christians who need to hear the gospel, or Christians who need to be built up, is harder when you have a spouse and a family, just in the amount of people and things in the diary. They need your devoted time and attention. Now, a family home is a great place to do both of those things. It is a hub to bring people in, to disciple younger Christians, to evangelize to non-Christians. There should be, around the tables of families and married couples, a wide variety of visitors. There should be guests staying in your spare room. Yet there are times when actually pleasing your wife or your husband or your children means that you're not at all the events. Or you do cut aside special time with them. That isn't the same as giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It's a godly endurance of the troubles of being married. Married person, your interests, you know very well, are divided between the worldly affairs of your marriage and the affairs of the Lord. The Lord gifted you with that marriage, as Paul said last week, but it has divided your devotion. And what God has divided, no one should try and force together. It can be disastrous if you do try and do the ministry of a single person when you are married. 
Um, A.W. Tozer, a renowned preacher and author in the mid-20th century, he wrote, spoke, traveled very prolifically. Um, His wife was at home with six children. And when uh, he died, she remarried uh, a man called Leonard Odom. And in a comparison of her two husbands, she said, Aidan, that is A.W. Tozer, Aidan loved Jesus Christ, but Leonard Odom loves me. Now that sent a chill down my spine the first time I read it. And I wonder if it will do the same for married people here who like to think themselves devoted to the Lord's affairs, that your spouse could ever say the same of you. The Lord calls us to make many sacrifices for the gospel in our marriage, but he does not call us to sacrifice our marriage to the gospel. So how does that kind of life contrast with the unmarried person? Well, life for a single person often is much less complicated. It is not easier, per se, but the nature of the troubles that the unmarried person has is is different. Vaughan Roberts, who's a Christian minister who is single and will remain single until he dies because he is attracted to members of the same sex but knows that the Lord says that romantic and sexual relationships are only for a marriage between a man and a woman. So Vaughan Roberts knows he's single to the day he dies He says of single people, we are pulled in fewer directions than those who are married and are therefore free to give more time to the Lord's affairs. Imagine the Tuesday prayer meeting or your life group or uh, this evening service every week if no one in the church are married. If no one were at home right now putting the youngest members of the congregation to bed. Libby and I, we were married in um, December 2016. She moved to London a couple of months before that. Um, where we lived at the time, and she needed somewhere to live for a couple of months. So she ended up lodging in the home of this incredible woman from our congregation, um, who was in her mid-60s, recently retired, and never married. And she was a lady who lived in a right way, in an undivided devotion to the Lord. My main memory of her house is that you could never find anywhere to put anything down, because every surface was decorated with some kind of thank you card. Um... From all the people who'd stayed in her house, who'd come for lunch and dinner, who'd been there for a Bible study. Libby was lucky to get a room there, to be honest, because there was a constantly moving stream of visiting missionaries staying in her house. She had an extension built in order for them to stay in. She was constantly traveling to far-flung corners of the globe to go and encourage missionaries that the church supported there. Um, There was a large chunk, actually, when Libby lived there where she wasn't there because she was in Kazakhstan. Um, It didn't look like the house of a woman who had no children because it was full of things that others had given her. And Libby's main memory of it is that the carpet was filthy in a way that you would only expect of someone who has had lots of children. But it's because her house was as good as and full of all kinds of people who were she married and did she have children of her own, she would never have had the time to minister to. All those things, the travel, the space in the house, the room at the dinner table, they're things that a married person couldn't do. You might think, if you're unmarried here, how do I do that? Maybe you still live with your parents, or you're invested in a busy career, or you might think that the messy flat you share with a friend uh, isn't much of a hub for hospitality. But don't let those things be excuses for the opportunity that you've got. You are free from burdens and commitments that 90% of the church do deal with. And yet Christ has given you an opportunity with the short time before he comes to be free of those troubles. Paul concludes he's saying this for our own good in verse 35, not to restrict us, 
but that we may live in an undivided devotion to the Lord's. Do we really think these words are good? Some of us do. Some of you who have been unmarried for a long time absorbed these words years ago. Um, and you've been living this out. And let me encourage you and remind you that there will be great reward in heaven for how you've spent your time. Greater than what I will have as a married man. But most of us don't think that Paul's words are good because we think marriage is the aim. Either for ourselves or for those that we love. Singleness can be very lonely and difficult. Paul isn't denying that. Yet isn't it clear from what he says here that you lack nothing? Because in Christ, you've got something that is never going to pass away. And those of us who are married, like I was saying at the start, how do we view and treat those unmarried members of our congregation? Parents, especially if you have children of marrying age who aren't married, what do you want for them? How do you regard their singleness? When you imagine their future, are you hopeful for grandchildren or hopeful that they will have led a fruitful life for Christ. They're not mutually exclusive, but there is one that you should prize far above the other. We should be careful of the things that we say that can make life really hard for those who struggle with the Lord's gift of singleness. Wouldn't it be good if she found someone? Well, when you're married and have kids, you'll understand. Your turn next. They're not helpful. It can be a particular temptation for older married Christians to, without meaning to, pile the pressure on those who aren't married. Because marriage is normal, it does happen for most of us, but it puts that person in a state that is less preferable for the work of the kingdom. Um, Paul goes on though, in verse 36, with a word to those who are engaged, that he's not trying to um, tell people to Throw off their engagements. If anyone's worried, verse 36, that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he's engaged to, if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. So if you're engaged and you still really want to get married to your fiancé, there's nothing wrong with that. The compulsion that the Lord has laid on you of love for them, of loyalty to the promise that you've already made to each other, is good. Also, if it's because you think you honestly lack the self-control to remain unmarried... Paul says that that is as good a reason as any to get married. But those who've made up their mind not to marry, in verse 37, Paul says, do better. The man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who's under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. And in fact, we are told, does better. May mean that if you are in some kind of relationship now, that whether you, if you don't feel the compulsion to see that through, that you embrace a life of singleness. If you do have a compulsion to get married, go ahead and do it, and we look forward to it. Paul makes a special mention as he closes of widows um, who are in a different position from those who are never married. The never married, Paul tells them that in no way should you think of yourself as lacking anything. You lack trouble and burden, but actually you possess a great opportunity. But being a widow or a widower is a lack. You've been through the pain of losing your spouse. You were one flesh, but that has been broken. Paul basically thinks single life is less complicated, but that's true in a very different way for those who have lost their spouse. 
And yet Paul offers the same basic instruction, doesn't he? In my judgment, she, the widow, is happier if she stays as she is. Even in the pain of that loss, there is time and space to bring others in and to bless them. The passage that we've gone through this evening is one of comfort and challenge in view of the fact that time is short. If you're single, for whatever reason, the Lord sees you not as one who lacks anything, but as one who has the freedom to devote yourself to Christ's affairs. You know Christ, and there's nothing greater than that. And you have the opportunity to devote yourself to making him known to others. But be challenged if you're not married here. Do you view your singleness in the way the Lord does? Do you remember that the time is short and you have opportunities open to you to devote yourself to the Lord's affairs? If you're somewhere between singleness and marriage, be comforted that the compulsion you might feel is is good. It would be good for you to be married. The Lord's not trying to take your relationship away from you with these words. But there may be challenge here. If things change or that compulsion isn't strong enough to lead you to marriage, would you embrace singleness wholeheartedly in the way that Paul does? And those of us who are married, take comfort, the Lord loves your marriage, but how, in view of the present crisis, can you live as if you were not married? What do you hold on to too dearly in married life, in home life, such that it hinders you from your devotion to the Lord's affairs? For all of us, how do we live as if this is a day of crisis and the time is short before Christ returns? There is a great task and an unfinished task for the church to do before Christ returns. The time to do it is short. Yet even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let me pray. We thank you, Lord, that you are coming and coming soon. And we long for and look to that day. Yet, Lord, we are rebuked in many ways for how we've not devoted ourselves to your affairs in view of that day. Show us, whatever our state, how we might do that. Comfort us, Lord, if we struggle um, with the single state that you have given us. Let us see that it is a gift, that it is an opportunity that we possess Christ who will never pass away. In his name we pray. Amen.